Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm your host, Jean McCarthy. I write the blog Unpickled, where I've been telling my story of life after alcohol since my first day of sobriety in 2011. I tell my stories there, and I invite you to share your stories here. My guest today is Jessica. And Jessica is in recovery and had wanted to share her story with other people, not only about recovery, but just about life in general, knowing the power of connection. And so Jessica created a podcast about motherhood called Mother, Where Art Thou? And she joins me today to talk about her story before, during, and after her uh, relationship with alcohol and to share a little bit about what life looks now like now. So Jessica, welcome to the Bubble Hour. Hi, thank you for having me. Um, I'm so excited to be here, and I'm blessed to have been able to be given the opportunity to share my story. So thank you so much. Oh, um, I'll go ahead. My pleasure. Thank you. I'm just going to go ahead and just kind of share what, a little bit of what it was like and what happened and what things are like now. That's okay. That's wonderful. Thank you. Okay. So. Um, I was born a twin. I have a twin sister, very identical, and um, we were born to two very, very eccentric, outgoing, loud um, uh, parents who are now past. And um, my dad was Cuban. My mom um, uh, was a little bit of a mixture of everything. So our house was always loud and fun and crazy and um, they were both uh, performers and dancers, so just that type of um, atmosphere was what I kind of grew up in, and um, both of my parents were um, addicts and alcoholics, and they, um, the disease of addiction took them both out um, from long-term use, like effects. My mom had cirrhosis of the liver. My dad um, passed away of an overdose, possible overdose, uh, in his sleep. And so um, addiction runs, like, very heavily in my family. I have an uncle who is an addict, and um, he's also in recovery. And I have an aunt who's also um, in recovery as well. So it's definitely prevalent in my um, family. Um, Growing up, I always kind of, of course, like, cliche, I always knew I was different. Um, But um, for me, like, I was just very emotional all the time and just kind of didn't really know where I belonged. I always just kind of felt like an outsider. And naturally, because I have a twin sister, I was always compared. Um, I even compared myself a lot. So it was just kind of something that I've been dealing with for a really long time. Um, We uh, were born in Florida and we moved to Georgia when we were around like 10 years old. So I say Georgia is my home because that's where I really like grew up and like my roots were. I'm now in Charleston, South Carolina. So things are a little different over here. It's sun and the beach is very nice. Um, Anyways, but I was diagnosed ADD and ADHD when I was in fifth grade. And, like, school was really hard for me. My family was not very stable, and it was a lot of, like, 
you know, like domestic abuse, verbal abuse, just, it was, I lived in a very chaotic home and nothing was ever stable and it was just always chaos. And so as a young person, like I was always trying to find ways to compartmentalize my thoughts. And, um, one of those ways later on ended up being using drugs and alcohol. I was diagnosed ADHD and ADD and, um, when I was 10, like I just said, and I started taking Ritalin and Adderall and prescription drugs and things like that. So um, I always kind of knew that there was something out there that could make me feel different. Um, and so I just ended up resorting to whatever that was. When I was 15, no, there was, there's no way I was 15. I was probably 13. That sounds about right. When I was 13, <laughs> my, my first experience was um, when I found my dad's um, stash of marijuana, and um, I made a little you know, bowl or whatever out of a Coke can, and I had my first experience with marijuana. This opened like a whole new door for me because I immediately like felt a sense of relief when I um, partaked in that little experiment there, and I felt like calm. I felt a sense of calm come over me. Um, so I mean, I I was immediately hooked. The aggression of the disease didn't really kick in until I was kind of like old enough to be left alone to my own devices. So, I mean, it was really hard to find that, you know, to go find what I, I, what I wanted, what I wanted, you know, like what I was experimenting with. I couldn't easily like go find that at 13 years old. So what I ended up doing was stealing um, prescription pills from my mom. And um, I discovered Xanax really early on in life. And I remember specifically one time I was, was really young and I had gone to my cousin's wedding in Florida and I was snorting Vanax in the bathroom and like drinking at her wedding at 15. So from that one time of using that one, that having that one experiment with marijuana, that's how quickly my disease progressed from 13 to 15 years old. And now that I'm thinking about it, like that's extremely, like that's fast. And so ever since then, like a whole new door like was open. I was able to sneak things. I was able to lie. I was able to just like lie through omission. I was very deceitful, very, very manipulative. Um, I used to, I also suffer from bipolar disorder, which is something that I'm just now um, accepting um, now in my sobriety, which is actually very, very hard. But at the time, I didn't know that that's what that was. And so when I was young, I was really like good at manipulating and making my mom believe that I was going to literally like lose my mind to the point where she would like hand me and like feed me these pills. And so it just, I don't know, I created my own like 
tornado, my own storm. And I egged it on and I lived in it for so long that I don't remember parts of my, my life from age 15 to 24, I would say, because I got sober when I was 25. So from age 15 to 24, I like, it, it was like constantly living in this blackout. And um, it was extremely scary. So I don't want to go too, too much into like all the details and like war stories or anything like that. But um, I will say I felt miserable. I felt alone. I felt scared. I felt out of control. Um, I would go, of course, as I got older, the disease progressed and I would drink until blackout every single time I drank. Like without fail, anytime I picked up a glass of alcohol, I blacked out and I don't remember my prom night. I don't remember most of high school. I was, um, I ran into an old high school friend and we were chatting and she was telling me, oh my God, do you remember this? And, da, 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 da. and I'm like, I have no idea what the hell you're talking about. <laughs> I don't remember anything. Are you sure that wasn't my sister? Like, that's where I was at. So, I mean, it, it took a chunk of my life away from me. And I'm trying so hard to make up for that now. Um, I guess it's my way of making a living amends to myself, if you want to think about it that way. But so my high school years were really, really hard. Um I'm, you know, I put myself in very scary situations. I blacked out all the time. Um, in 2009, I was involved in um, New Year's of 2009. I was involved in a um, single car accident where an ex-boyfriend of mine was driving my car. And um, we were both obliterated. We were both, like, completely wasted. And um, the car flipped three times and hit a tree. I didn't have a seatbelt on. The window was rolled all the way down. By the grace of God, I lived, which, you know, I should not have for the simple fact that I had no seatbelt on and the window was rolled all the way. My side window was rolled all the way down. The passenger side was rolled all the way down. And the car flipped three times and hit a tree. So, I mean, I don't know. But God had a mission for me, and I was I was saved that night. Um, I walked away with merely, like, a few scratches and a brace on my knee or on my leg, one of the ones where you can't, like, bend your, your knee. A few nights later, I went to jail. <laughs> I mean, what? Like, I'm laughing now because that's so crazy to think. Like, that's where I was. And that's what this disease does to you. It progresses into, until you no longer have any type of control over your life. Um, a few days later, I went to jail because I punched my father in the face because he was trying to hit my mom. And we both ended up going to jail that night. After that, I had ended up a few times in jail for various um, things, but, like, um, I have Simple Battery was one of them, and um, they always, for some reason, ended up in a, was, was fighting. Um, I have two DUIs. Uh, 
I was charged and I completed everything that I needed to do for those DUIs. In 2012, my father lost his life to um, this disease. And um, that was probably the hardest time of my life. And I was really so much, like, just really so much trying to, like, keep everything together for, like, the whole family and, like, keep everything in control for everyone and because everything just was so chaotic. My mom literally went downhill after that. Her um, health went downhill. She started using methamphetamine. Um, it was just a really very dark, scary, scary time for me and my sister. Um, I met my daughter's father. And uh, for a minute there, I thought things were going to be good. It was like, okay, I found a man who loves me. He can, you know, be there to support me. And, you know, I have something to look forward to. And, of course, I did because I have my beautiful daughter out of it. Um, before I found out I was pregnant, I got my first DUI. And um, I promised myself that I would stop drinking because of how – bad it was that night I got arrested my lawyer said you don't want to see the video because you're going to be convicted there's no way out of this <laughs> I was like I don't even want to see it um and then um yeah I promised myself I would stop drinking and I didn't and I was like all right well if I'm not going to stop drinking then I'm not going to drink and drive ever again and I didn't I still drank and I drove and it was, it was easy as one, two, three. I mean, you know, like I started drinking, got in the car. I mean, it was, it was no thought about it. I didn't care. Once I had that first drink inside of me, I didn't care about the consequences thereafter. And of course, like many alcoholics or addicts who know that they have a problem or want to stop, I tried all the tactics. I tried drinking water in between drinks. I tried changing my lick, like drinking different drinks. Like instead of drinking liquor, I would just drink wine or I would just drink beer or, you know, I just, I try different things, right? Those didn't work. It doesn't matter what I drank because it just mattered about the number of times I drank, how many drinks I had, you know, I could change, you know, from drinking liquor to only wine and I would drink as much wine as I needed to get drunk. Like that's how it worked. I would um, get to a point where I would use whatever I could get my hands on, whether it was pills, you know, doesn't matter what kind of pill it was, ecstasy, molly, cocaine. I never got into anything like heroin or meth, but as they say, yet I never got there yet you know I didn't graduate then you know what I mean but that doesn't mean mm -hmm. if I weren't to go back out that I wouldn't so that's why it's so important for me to to give back and to be of service because there's no doubt about it if I went back out I probably would so it was a scary time um in 2015 I broke up with my um, daughter's father 
and um, I was sentenced to um, two years in DUI court program in Fulton County, that's in Atlanta. And this program was, I would say, like a very extensive version of probation, like to the max. I had to appear to court three times a month in the first phase, which was like, I want to say, eight weeks. I think it was like eight weeks or something. And then you'd graduate into the next phase and that would lessen. Um, Within that first phase, I didn't have a license and I was a single mom. Um, I was working a full-time job trying to keep a roof over my daughter's head and my head and um, I didn't have a car. I had to do 250 hours of community service. I had to go to court three times a month. I had to do treatment classes three times a week and I had to go to Alcoholics Anonymous three times a week. Um, And that was just the first phase. The second phase lessened, you know, your, your uh, thing, the things that you had to do, like that was lessened. So I went from like three times a, a week of treatment classes to like two times a week treatment classes. And um, that was a, that was a two-year thing. Um, within my first year of sobriety in that first phase of DUI court program, I learned um, some. I found some things out about um, my daughter's father, and it literally tore me to pieces. I found out of his drug use, and um, it made me feel lied to and small and I wanted to use so bad like I just felt like how could this person lie to me for so long and make me feel so crazy and make me feel like I was the problem for so long knowing that this is what he was hiding you know so I wanted to use extremely bad when I found that out by the grace of God and by the people that I had in my corner and the work that I was doing through the 12 step program, I didn't use. When I was in this DUI court program, my mom got really, really sick. My mom was, went to South Carolina to stay with my sister. My sister was taking care of her as my sister was a new mom at this time. And she was also a new caregiver at this time. She was changing our mother's diapers and her own son's diaper, like her new son's diapers. I got to take a minute because it's so much. (laughs) (laughs) But um, so my mom was um, in home hospice at this time, and I was under the DUI court program in Fulton County, Atlanta, Georgia, and I couldn't leave the state. To fast forward, I had to say goodbye to my mom over the phone while I was at work. I had no car. I had no way to get there. I couldn't leave the state. I had a daughter to take care of. I was in this extensive probation treatment DUI court thing, and I was just trying to keep my life together from falling apart. And my mom was dying in another state. 
and I had to say goodbye to her over the phone in the back alley of my job, which I did. I took my time to go outside, and I did that. And then I hung up the phone. I went inside. I got my stuff together. I, you know, got myself together, wiped my tears and everything like that, and I went back to work because that's all I could do. Why would I leave work? You know, there wasn't, I couldn't, the only reason I would leave is if I could go there. And I wasn't able to. Not not immediately anyway, because you need permission from the courts to leave the state. And that takes writing up a thing and sending it to them and, you know, getting approved and all of that. So the only thing that I was able to do at that time was, continuing on my path of recovery and keeping a roof over my daughter's head and keeping my life together. It was probably the hardest time in my life and I did it sober. And I thought the hardest time in my life was when I lost my dad and I wasn't sober, which, you know, it was like getting hit by a boulder, you know, and I was able to stay Stay sober through all of that. At 25 years old, single mom, no car. Like I was making like $11 an hour and keeping a roof over my head and my daughter's head in Atlanta, Georgia. Okay, like rent's not cheap in Atlanta, Georgia, you know. And um, it was a really, really, really tough time. After saying goodbye to my mom and doing all that and going back to work. When I left work that night, I immediately went to a meeting, and um, I, uh, after the meeting, we say, stand in a circle, and we say the Lord's Prayer and everything like that, and so we said the Lord's Prayer, and I felt like weight was lifted off of me, like the sensation like came over me, and I knew at that very moment that my mom had taken her last breath. And, like, this is a real story. I I felt my mom's spirit leave her body in a completely different state miles and miles away. And um, when I got home, my sister called me and told me that mom had just passed away while I was in that meeting. That's God right there. You know, that's my God. That's my higher power. You know, like. It is whoever you want it to be. But for me, that's what that was. And I stayed sober through that. By the grace of my higher power and the 12-step program and the new life that I was given, I stayed sober through the really hardest time of my life. Like it was, I'm trying not to cry, but so I went from being this like miserable person that would black out, let men do whatever they wanted to me. I would wake up with bruises I couldn't explain. I was um, I was taken advantage of when I was in drunken states. I just put myself in the worst places possible. And I almost lost my life countless times. And I don't want to go into story after story to say, holy crap, yeah, you did, you know, like listen to that story. Because the point is, 
I was miserable. The point is, I was living and leading a life that I didn't want to live and I didn't want to lead. And I was like a prisoner in my own life and I couldn't escape it. And I didn't want that. You know, I think everyone's bottoms are different. And I definitely think that you can have bottoms in recovery and in sobriety. And I think it's important to have a network of people and a support group and a plan of action. For me, my plan of action and my network and my support group is 12 steps in the 12 step program. And um, that's what works for me. When I worked the steps, what it did for me was it relieved me of bondage from myself. And I was able to get everything inside of me that was haunting me and paralyzing me out. And I was able to share it with another trusted human being. I was able to look at the things that I had done and make amends to the people that I had hurt because I was wrong in those situations. That's not something I would have done in active addiction. No way. You know, like, my life looks completely different now than it ever did three years ago. My sobriety date is February 2016. 28, I have a five-year-old, I have an 11-month-old, and I'm expecting my third. Ah, congratulations. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Christmas baby. It's supposed to be a Christmas baby. <laughs> but I'm, I'm, you know, my life today looks like a woman who went through hell and back and is coming to terms with the fact that not only am I an addict and an alcoholic, but I suffer with a mental illness. And my mental illness is bipolar disorder. I was diagnosed twice in 2015. And when I found out, I was like, there's no way. I Like, there can't be other things wrong with me. But at the time, I was so desperate for a reason to my crazy that I was just like, okay, cool. I'm not just crazy. I have an actual reason. But... Lo and behold, like, I didn't disclose my addiction to, you know, my doctors. And what I say is my addiction was friends with my bipolar disorder. And my bipolar disorder, no, my addiction is enemies with my bipolar disorder. And my bipolar disorder is is friends with my addiction. That's (laughs) how I say. (laughs) Isn't that confusing? But it makes so much sense. Explain that then. So, in active addiction, for me, okay, for mania looks like complete chaos for me. And when I'm in active addiction, that is times 100. So, my wanting to go out and black out is accelerated. Um, 
it's part of bipolar disorder, like hyperactivity and hypersexuality and um, mixed, like, episodes, really high highs and really low lows, and alcohol is a depressant. And drugs are, some drugs are depressant, and some drugs are uppers, and I liked depressants, and I liked uppers, and I'm bipolar. So I was literally adding on to my bipolar disorder. I mean, if you think about it, you're just making your bipolar disorder worse by using it, you know. For me, at least, this is for me. This is my experience. Like my doctors even said, don't use, <laughs> and I did anyway. So, so but do you yeah. take? Sorry, keep going. Go <laughs> I have so many questions for oh. you, but bring us to oh, today. Yeah. I'll, I'll wrap it up really quick. So that's where I'm at now. I um, three years um, recovered, recovering, and accepting this bipolar disorder finally coming to terms with it and um, have two beautiful children expecting one on the way. I live my life. Literally my mission is to give back to the community and to society. I advocate for mental illness and um, addiction. Um, I also want it to be known like that it is okay and it is perfectly okay for you to admit that you have a mental illness and you have an addiction and the stigma that people are carrying around, you know, and like the words crazy and psycho or whatever, you know, just the stigma. I'm trying so hard to break those barriers in that wall. Like I don't want that to get in the way of people being honest and true to themselves and authentically you. Like, you should be able to be authentically you without caring about what the world thinks or how the world will look at you. I struggled with this my entire life. I heard crazy. I heard psycho. I need to be in a mental institute. Like, I heard these things my entire life growing up. Well, I'm here now to say you know, all these flaws that you think are what makes me flawed are what make me human and are what, and is the reason why I'm here and why God kept me here on this planet was to let other people know that it's okay. And that's you. That's how you were made. So, Yeah. So I definitely believe that recovery is 100% doable and you can achieve it. And if you want your life to look different in a, in a good way and turn it into something better than where you are now, like it's definitely something that you can do. It's just a question to ask yourself is if that's what you want. I love Oprah's podcast. Super Soul Conversation, and she says, use your life as a class. My life is not anything other than to be an example to others, and I try very hard 
not to preach. Um, and if I find myself preaching, I stop and I say, I'm not a preacher. I'm just a person that lived this life, and this is my story. Well, Jessica, your story is so powerful because you are, I'm grateful for your tenacity because I feel like you, you know, you weren't protected. Your parents weren't able to give you what you needed because of their own problems and, and, um, and, and you sort of rose up and it sounds like, you know, as you were, um, started using at a young age, you were really, I, I really got a sense as you talked about it, that what you were really trying to do was self-medicate. I mean, it gets mixed mm-hmm. up in the, in what society tells us about being cool and fun and, and adult-like. And, and, you know, the, of course, there's some of that in it too. But, you know, at the heart of it, you talked about um, feeling normal when you used or feeling calm when you used. And, and so knowing that um, you really weren't getting the help you needed and you did your best to look after yourself all those years. Um, and mm-hmm. and now as an adult and the, and a mom and, you know, you're running your own home and you get to make the rules now and you get to make sure that the children are looked after the way you know they should be. And I just, I wonder how that feels to you if, you know, as do you feel like as you're running your own household now and, and meeting your children's needs, is there a part of you that feels like you're also looking after yourself or do you wrestle with resentment that your childhood, you know, as a mom, sometimes we realize, Oh my gosh, like my parents let me, you know, walk to the mall when I was seven or whatever. <laughs> and, um, uh, and we, sometimes as a parent, we realize all the ways we weren't cared for. And, and anyway, so I just wonder, it was like, now as an adult, does does the way you live your life now bring up resentments about the past or is there just only room for healing? How do you feel about being in charge now as the parent in the house? I'm so glad you asked that. Absolutely, 100%, it brings up a million resentments. However, all of those resentments bring room for healing and for me to be able to identify those resentments is is a blessing because for so long I lived a life, I lived such a resentful life that I, first of all, I didn't even really understand what resentment was until I came into recovery. And resentment is the first thing that's going to take me back out. Because I'm the, type, I'm the type of person that likes to drink at things and use at things and get mad at things and at people. So what I find now as a parent is I find myself having a lot of control issues. Like a lot to the point where it's, you know, getting in the way of me being able to live in the now, you know. Um I don't give myself enough credit with how well I am doing um, and how well my children are behaved 
Like, I feel like I'm always getting on to my daughter to behave, but I hear from so many people how well-behaved my children are. And I'm like, no, she's a terror. <laughs> like, she's fine. She's awesome. She's really well-behaved. And, um, but I think those resentments do get in the way of being able to live in the now. So... I do. Yeah, 100% for sure. But you're aware of it because of your activity within a 12-step program. I mean, just a lot of our listeners aren't familiar with the 12-step program. So let's just talk for a minute about resentments because mm-hmm. it's part of the healing process that the, that a 12-step program addresses is is the understanding that resentments are one of the reasons why we drink. But um and and it, the the process of twelve step invites people to go through their resentment and and understand their resentments because it really um, you know if in a more like a Buddhist would say like your your the things that trigger you tell you who you are the things that bother you show you the parts of you that needs healing and in a twelve step tradition that is represented by resentment. So you kind of go, when something comes up as a resentment, you know, whether it's that someone cuts you off in traffic and they have a really fancy sports car and it makes you feel like rich people are always getting in my way (laughs) or disrespecting Mm -hmm. me, you know, I mean, um, and then you pause and you ask yourself, you know, what's my role in this and what does this reveal about me? And so it really becomes active and ongoing healing in a 12-step program really becomes a process, an active process of staying aware of resentments and then using them as a tool to help you heal. Does that does that yeah. um, accurately reflect how you see it in your experience with 12-step? Absolutely. I love the whole thing that you said about like the what the Buddhists believe and like if you are irritated about something or if like the car pissed you off because it's a fancy car. Okay. But why did that fancy car piss you off? Is it because the car is fancy or because it got in your way? And it's like, what is the underlying issue of that? That's the part of me that needs healing because that's Mm going to get in the way of my peace. And a fancy car shouldn't piss me off. A fancy car should make me want to work harder so I can have a fancy car. Or at least be, you know, thankful that someone's able to drive a fancy car and I get to see it <laughs> because I'm alive. <laughs> I get to this beautiful car. <laughs> you know what I mean? But yeah, or just or just to not react, right? Or just to be just, observing yeah, it without a reaction, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Because that reaction yeah. for me especially because I suffer with bipolar disorder, that reaction for me is like pushing, you know, a big giant ball down a rope, like a hill. It's just going to keep on getting worse. And something else during the day is going to piss me off. It's a domino effect. Right. And yeah. uh, that's, what, that's how it starts off for me. And um, I think that um, res- that has probably, so it's step four, and um, it saved my life. It truly, truly did. I don't think I would be able to be 
the type of person that I am today without looking at what I do and how it affects other people negatively. Now, the parts in what I do that do affect other people negatively, because not everything I do affects other people negatively. But there are parts of me and things that I do that do just that. And without looking at my resentments and my character defects, you know, things like that, without looking at that stuff, I can't see what other people are seeing. So it's like looking at the inside of me. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's where healing but, really starts, right? That quietness and openness, being open to accepting that, gosh, maybe I have a role in this. And that must be hard, mm-hmm. too, for you because, you know, you have such a good excuse to blame everything on your upbringing and to say, you know, I'm an adult child of alcoholics and uh, mm-hmm. I had a terrible childhood and it's not fair. It is not fair. Of course I use, of course I'm dysfunctional. It's how I coped with everything that happened to me. And mm-hmm. like no one would blame you for saying that, except it's not going to help you be well. Right. <laughs> right. So exactly. if you want to get better, you have to get past the unfairness of it and say, yes, it was horribly unfair. And yet I still might have a role in my unhappiness and my illness and my addiction. I mean, that, that to me takes a lot of character and a lot of strength to, to face that. So, I mean, your story just really impresses me because I just feel like you, you, um, I mean, you're working hard at this. You want this. I want to talk to you about what it feels Mm -hmm. like, you know, now after three years of sobriety, to really have a chance to be treated for your mental illness and your dual diagnosis um, and to allow the medications, I presume you're on medication, but treatment, we'll just say treatment um, in general, um, without the interference of drugs and alcohol um, to actually work. So how does it feel now? You know, I just feel like you spent the first, 20 some years of your life ping-ponging in survival mode, but to now really be in recovery, what does that feel like? How does it feel different? Well, I'll say this. When I was taking medication and still using drugs and alcohol, the only effects that I was seeing work were the drugs and alcohol. You know, that was, I couldn't really see what the medicine was doing because the drugs and alcohol were, I was, let's say I was taking a lot higher dose of drugs and alcohol than I was my medicine basically. Uh So I was, I wasn't even giving it the chance to work. And I think that's Uh another thing that people have a huge stigma on is, you know, medicine, it not working. And of course it's not going to work if you're going to, you know, do stuff that it says not to do. Cause that's why it says not to do it, you know, <laughs> but now in recovery, I, um, 
I have been able to see a change in the way I feel and the way I respond to certain things while taking medication and not, you know, inter interfering with the effects of it with, through drugs and alcohol because I'm able to, I'm more aware, you know, I can effectively go to my doctor and tell him how it's making me feel and that be exactly what it is because that's what I'm taking. I'm not taking anything else. So I can't like pick and I don't get to like pick and choose what it is I think is doing, you know what I mean? Or is affecting Mm -hmm. me. Like, is Mm -hmm. it the medicine or is it this? You know what I mean? I know it's the medicine because that's what I'm putting in my body and I know what I'm putting in my body. So I think that it works a lot better when you use it as prescribed. And for me, that's in sobriety. (laughs) I can't go, you know, back out to use drugs and alcohol and then go be put on bipolar medication. Just doesn't work like that. Has understanding your bipolar, has that helped you to sort of forgive yourself for some of your past and, and understand that, you know, there's a lot of beautiful memes out there about, you know, you're not a bad person for the things you did to try to cope with your life. And I feel like that must especially be true when you understand that some of that behavior was symptomatic of your diagnosis. Absolutely. So I'm actually within the past like week, I would say this is very fairly, fairly new. I am coming to terms with the fact that I, am, I have bipolar disorder. That doesn't take away from the fact that I have had it. It's just now I'm accepting it. So I'm in actually in the process of having to treat myself right now as though I am new in recovery because of how I'm having to accept that I'm powerless over being bipolar. And... Um, so I've come to like my, I've gone to my friends and I've said, you know, things like, or I've gone to meetings and say, you know, I feel like I'm a newcomer again because of this, this and that. And um, I, I have been able to recognize certain behaviors of myself that are displayed in patterns. And um, I have been able to forgive myself for certain things that I've done in the past. However, it's still fairly new for me. So I'm still trying to figure out, is it okay for me to be okay with the fact that maybe that is why I did certain things. But for me, really, truly, it doesn't matter what it was that caused me to do whatever it was that makes me feel bad about guilty about it's just really what I'm doing now and how I feel now because this bipolar disorder and you know this disease of addiction has affected my life for so long that I just want to know how can I live the rest of my life in peace with all of this You mentioned that you have a twin, and um, mm-hmm. that's a special relationship. And yeah. 
no one understands a twin like another twin. <laughs> no, no. Um, are you close with your, it's a sister, right? Are you close with your sister? Yes. Um, me and my sister have a very, very hard relationship. Um, it's a tough relationship. Um, I like to describe my relationship with my sister like that really annoying couple that keeps breaking up and getting back together. <laughs> <laughs> That's like how our relationship is. I love my sister. I think she's amazing. Um, she really did some very selfless stuff when I was in the DUI court program. And even before, um, like I said, she took care of our mother and um, she was you know, taking care of her while our mom was on in-home hospice and then also taking care of her, um, her newborn as well. And so that caused us to have a really hard time in our relationship. And, um, but, um, I'm kind of learning now that there's a lot of her life that I didn't understand while going through the things that I was going through. And I found myself being so hateful because it's like, I found myself being resentful because I thought that how can she be so hard on me? She has no idea what I'm going through. And so when I think about that today, I'm like, that's so selfish of me because I have no idea what the hell she's going through. You know, and for me, I had a network of people. I had a, an outreach. I had a a plan of action. You know what I mean? And my sister had didn't have that, and so it was very unfair of me to be so selfish and self-loathing in my thinking during that time. But I think we've moved past a lot of those hard parts of our relationship and now we're just kind of learning to trust again I think I hope as you continue to heal that relationship continues to heal because I feel like our you know no one knows us like our siblings and when you've had a childhood that's you know doesn't have the sort of parental guidance that you needed you guys both kind of had to be do your best to be the parents and um, and right. couldn't be just the sisters that you need to be. I, as you were talking about healing that relationship and understanding things differently, it reminded me of an expression we sometimes hear or a sentiment we sometimes hear about how getting sober and, and changing your life, even though the people around you don't change, your relationships can all change because you're different. So everything's different. Yeah. And I feel like I really heard that in what you were just saying about your sister. Yeah, and also uh, something that I've heard as well is, you know, um, I have three, you know, I have three years of recovery and sobriety time, but I did a lot of things to my sister that hurt her, and it's going to take her three times longer Mm -hmm. because I have the program and I have support, but also because you know, the way other people heal is not necessarily the same way and in the same pace that we do. Mm-hmm. And there's you a know, lot it, of caution, isn't there? There's, like sometimes people are cautious. They're like, okay, I know you're sober, right. but I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop. And it can take a long time to convince them that this is my life now. This is, this is who I am. And fair enough. Exactly. Because 
hurt people protect themselves for a reason. Um, exactly. But yeah, and, it, and because you have recovery, you are willing to wait, right? You, you, you'll wait as long as it takes. Um, yeah, I'm also, I'm willing to wait and I'm willing to be patient. And I, I don't really do well at both of those things, but <laughs> I try. <laughs> Uh, We have just a a few minutes left, so let's take that time to talk about the podcast that you created. It's called Mother, Where Art Thou? And Mm -hmm. tell us a little bit about it, why you created it, and what is your goal with your podcast? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Mother, Where Art Thou? was kind of just a, it was like a gift kind of given to me to, you know, for my higher power. It was just kind of like a thought that was instilled in my head, and it's like, here you go do something with this. It was really more so the name kind of just came to me. And I was like, what am I supposed to do with this name? This is such a crazy name. What does this mean? And so when I got to thinking about mother, where art thou? It made me think about where I, where I am as a mom. And um, at the time I was in a very, well, I was in a very dark place. I was a new, I was a new mom of, of, again, uh, I had, I had my son. And so I was dealing with like postpartum depression and, Also, I was um, in one of my manic episodes, so I was in the start of my manic episode, actually, and um, yeah, I I just thought to myself, you know, I have got to find a way to get all of these thoughts out of my head, you know, and so I've always loved to write. I've been writing ever since I was a little girl, and I've always loved to talk. Um, Sometimes I talk so fast, I can't even tell what I just said or what I'm saying. <laughs> um, I just, I love, I just love communication. Um, it's just one of the things that makes me feel whole. So I created Mother Where Art Thou as a place and a, a podcast and a blog, um, but more so as a place for mothers to go to who suffer with mental illness or who suffer with addiction or who just suffer with, you know, the crazy times that mom, a mom can deal with. Like, the stuff that being a mom, you know, is sometimes is screaming kids all day long. Like, motherhood is beautiful, but motherhood is also crazy. <laughs> like, you know, and, like, if anyone tells you different, like, whatever. Whatever rose-colored glasses they're living in, I don't want them. Because the truth is, spilled Cheerios on the floor, messy bun, you know, that's hard to deal with. You're human way before you are a mom, you know what I mean? And Mm -hmm. I think it takes a village. I think that we all have our struggles. You know, I've talked about mental illness. I've talked about addiction. I've talked about what life is like as a stay-at-home mom, you know, because we all know that it's not, you know, this just a glorious thing all the time. You know what I mean? Of course it's amazing, but there's also some things that are tough to deal with and we need a place to, you know, let loose into an outlet, you know, I've talked to a, um, a mom who has a daughter with a dual diagnosis of down syndrome and autism. You know what I mean? Like whatever your, your struggle is or your challenge is while being a mom, you know, Mother, where art thou? Is a place to share that. It's a place to discuss those things. It's a safe place for you to go as a mom. I don't know. Maybe one day it will just it will be extended to 
just women in general or anyone, but right now um, it's specifically for moms of all walks of life and all struggles and just mom life in general. So my mission really is to help advocate mental illness and addiction and through, through things like that. I'm glad you're doing this project because currently what's being offered to young moms is the antidote for being isolated and, and exhausted and, and imperfect mm-hmm. is this rosé all day nonsense, you know, like this mommy juice culture. I just feel like yeah. um, the alcohol industry is really <laughs> taking advantage of the fact that Absolutely. women are, are needing connection and support and it's exploiting them. And so I'm so grateful for women like you that are saying, let's just talk. Let's just yeah, talk. Let's this talk. is what we need. Yeah. I mean, and, um, about it, postpartum depression is like so serious nowadays. And like so many women suffer through that. And so many, well, so many moms suffer with postpartum depression and uh, that's part of mental illness. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, tell us how, how can our listeners find your podcast, Jessica, and how can they reach you if they want to connect after hearing our discussion today? So um, you can uh, reach us at www.mwatpodcast.com. Um, you can email me at mwatpodcast at gmail.com. And you can listen to the podcast on Spotify. Apple Podcasts, Pocket Cast, Breaker, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Radio Public, and Stitcher. Also, I do have a blog on our website, which is an extension of the podcast. You also can find us on Facebook as well. Awesome. Ah, oh, that's great. Well, thank you for spending some time with uh, the listeners and myself today. It's been great getting to know you, and thank you for the service that you're giving to other women with your podcast and the service that you're giving to the uh, recovery community by being on the Bubble Hour today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I've been speaking with Jessica of Mother Where Art Thou podcast, and again, her website is mwatpodcast.com. So, Mother Where Art Thou, that's the mwatpodcast.com. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, you can also reach Jessica just by emailing me, thebubblehour at gmail.com, and I can forward your message on to her as well. That's all for this week, everybody. Um, thank you so much for being here, Jessica. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Until next time, take good care. Not proud that that was me And when I face it I take back a little dignity Not looking for excuses I just want to be free from power Weakness head on me In a dark corner is where shame lies behind We speak your strong you keep it all the time.
my power. 